0: This is another iRaw podcast. And so this conversation about recognizing multiplicity and specificity and this flourishing and the possibility and the wonder of how others experience the world is crucial because it is the move directly against that resourceism, that objectification that makes all these very damaging, horrific systems like allowed to stay in play. Because you already have that ideological apparatus that is saying they don't have an internal life, they don't have a life that matters, they don't have complex understandings of the world, it's not worth recognizing, it doesn't exist at all, we've already made that fundamental cleavage between humans and other animals, and we put them in that object place. So the, mm. the conversation about subjectivity, as abstract and theoretical and academic as it sounds, is the is the fighting back against that objectified view that is the very foundation of how the systems continue to move.
1: Welcome back to The Animal Turn. This is episode six of season two, where we focus on the theme of animals and experience. And today I'm speaking to Dr. Lauren Corman about the concept of interspecies subjectivity. As you'll hear in this episode, subjectivity and interspecies subjectivity in particular are quite difficult concepts to get your head around. There's a lot of thorny, murky, weird areas that you have to get into. And sometimes we don't come to conclusions when talking about it. Uh, It's just the nature of this type of concept. It's theoretically hard, but it's also really important, both for scholarship and for advocacy work. Uh, And Lauren helps me to understand these concepts, but also to embrace, I think, some of the areas that we don't yet understand, and that sometimes we need to be content and comfortable with not having clean answers or solutions to things. Uh, Dr. Lauren Corman is an associate professor of sociology at Brock University, and was hired as the first professor to specialize in critical animal studies. Uh, Prior to going to Brock University, Lauren also hosted the show, Animal Voices a radio show that was dedicated to animal advocacy and social justice. Lauren has been inspired by mentors in environmental studies and continues to interrogate the question of animals from intersectional, decolonial and anti-capitalist perspectives. Her foci include trauma, sociality and our focus today into species subjectivity. These focal points also show up in her work. She is the co-editor of a book called Animal Subjects 2.0 as well as a co-editor of a popular piece with Darren Chang titled From Web Markets to Meatpacking Why Animal Advocacy Fails Without anti racist Uh, She has contributed book chapters to books such as Colonialism and Animality, Anti-Colonial Perspectives in Critical Animal Studies. Uh, She is very interested in and currently working on a book about the complex histories of particularly vilified animals. As I noted earlier, uh, Lauren does a fantastic job of explaining interspecies subjectivity. And we kind of start the episode with first talking a bit about subjectivity itself. Uh, It seems like a really easy concept, but it's not what does flagging species in this whole conversation about subjectivity actually achieve and why is it important and I hope that you will find that uh, something I learned while actually conducting this interview is that considering and understanding subjectivity is actually crucial to understanding animals experience it starts to pry open and tear open all sorts of weird areas like where does individuals begin and end? Should we be focusing on ecology or or, or on individuals? What are our units of analysis? What role does history and context play? So this concept is one of those where the closer you look at it, the more questions you have. And I hope by the end of the episode you'll find that having these questions, well that's where the gold is. Uh, Actually learning to ask these questions and finding these questions and thinking through animals and experience with questions such as these in mind is really some fertile ground. So uh, happy listening. Uh, hi Lauren. Uh, welcome to the Animal Turn. It's a pleasure to have you.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. It's a delight to have the interviewee and interviewer reversed because I'm so used to being on the other side so thanks.
1: I know it's fantastic. you were doing uh, you were doing animal podcasts before I think or just as the animal turn um, not the podcast the actual process of rethinking relationships to animals was beginning to take place. Could you tell us a bit about your podcast?
0: Sure. It was, well, it was primarily a radio show that became something called a podcast in 2004. We were part of a collective that uh, was running a show out of CIUT, 89.5 FM in Toronto, with a group of people who had sort of passed the baton over the years. And I had ended up with that show with a collective of women in 2001. And the mandate of that program through its all of its incarnations was to try to think critically about the animal movements and to put them in conversation with other social justice issues. So it was sort of a sympathetic but critical reading of the animal movements as people who were invested in those mm-hmm. movements. And then it was also trying to have some pretty in-depth conversations about how we could build better coalitions with other social justice movements. So it was really grounded in intersectional thought and in anti-colonialism and anti-capitalism. And it was one of the few critical or any animal-based radio shows of the time So it's been amazing to see the proliferation of animal media and and podcasts. So we'd been on the air. I think that show had been on the air since 1998. I inherited it in 2001. And podcasting becomes a thing in 2004. And we sort of said, well, okay, I guess we could put this on the internet. And that really was fabulous to experience because suddenly we had international um, listeners People mm. like um, folks from Equalidad Animal in Spain would listen to a show that we might do, let's say uh, on Gary Francione, and then say how it informed their work. Or we had um, sometimes even slaughterhouse workers who were able to tune in from places like Arkansas, who you know saw a sympathetic voice for workers' perspectives in, in uh, meatpacking. So just these really unusual, unexpected, wonderful opportunities became available through podcasting so we were doing both the live aspect through CIUT and then putting the shows online and we developed quite a big archive through that process
1: yeah uh, the, the amount that's available uh, so it was called uh, animal Animal voices radio show is is that correct yeah I guess I should <laughs> yeah. have said that Animal, yeah, so animal Voices. Animal voices.
0: <laughs> yeah and there was two there was two you know and it was funny because you were introducing me and I almost said Welcome to Animal Voices. You're listening to CIUP <laughs> 89.5 FM in Toronto. So it's called Animal Voices. And there was also an Animal Voices in Vancouver, which I believe still operates. And actually, that term, Animal Voices, or that phrase, Animal Voices, was just so popular at the time. This idea of being the voice of animals it was this really important metaphor that mm-hmm. our radio show was in that legacy of really focusing on this notion of animal voices which became the central theme of my dissertation.
1: Yeah, I was going to say like a voice and and voicelessness is a really important part of your work and and so I've, I've been trying to read some of your work obviously in the lead up to this and it seems I was going to ask which came first your interest in voice or the the podcast.
0: I would say it was the work that I was doing in the feminist movements in the 1990s that really attracted me to the notion of voice, I would argue that voice is really the popular way of talking about subjectivity. And as far as I can tell, it is still the central, if not one of the central metaphors of most social justice movements. And it has um, a particular kind of saliency within the animal movements um, about the responsibility that activists have to speak on behalf of non-human animals. But the feminist movement in the West relies really heavily on the voice trope as well. It's it's a move against objectification. It's about reclamation of the um, subject within the public sphere. There's a whole bunch of important ideas that are packed into how people commonly use voice. And Mm -hmm. in the 1990s, when I got started off in politics voice was just really in the air. It was something that people were um, fighting for. They wanted to be recognized as having a voice, a chance to um, represent represent their own experiences. A lot of that was coming out of critiques of the white Western women's movement that had been speaking on behalf of other women and not taking into consideration um, queer voices and voices of women of color. Voices from the Global South, etc. So it was the terrain. And I think in some ways it's still a sort of linguistic terrain in which people negotiate ideas about who and what and it means to be a subject.
1: So so the idea of being a subject and being able to speak. Uh, so this seems like the themes you're bringing up in here is to speak is to have a voice and to have a voice is to be a subject. And uh, I think... That must pose some particular problems when you are looking at animals. Uh, I imagine that when people now, in hindsight, maybe think about a variety of activist movements involving humans, you think, okay, well, humans are able to speak in languages. Other humans are able to understand. So we're able to have a voice. Have you found that you've run into particular problems when trying to navigate the idea of animals and animals speaking for themselves?
0: It's a lovely question. It's one that I tried to answer in 300 pages or more of dissertation <laughs> writing and I, and I felt like I just scratched the surface because so many of the different ideas that you're linking together, this idea of you know speaking um, and voice and subjectivity, they're, they're unique um, in some ways uh, within the Western tradition because they're tied to humanism, a lot of those concepts. And that's something that I tried to look at, sort of the particularity of when people in dominant discourse in the West talk about voice. What are they? What are they really saying? <laughs> and they're talking about um, agency. That's one of the important ideas within voice. They're talking about a capacity for resistance, and they're talking about a reclamation of ex- experience. So we have that resistance, agency, reclamation of experience. Those sorts of things that I would say are part of. Um, subjectivity within the sort of dominant Western tradition. And it's part of what defines us as human within some of our key texts within the West that would define our um, Western dominant philosophical traditions. And so it's interesting. I thought it was really interesting as somebody who is so invested in voice and really wanting to think intersectionally and to you know prioritize and centralize the voices of people of color and um people with disabilities and women and queer folks and trans people etc that voice is just is just so important and then and then you see that within this western tradition though that the ability to have a voice and to speak gets um fused with what it means to be human and so exactly it presents this sort of paradox to the animal movements, because if we 're going to be doing the moves that other social justice movements do, which is to try to centralize the voices of the oppressed and to let them speak for themselves, how do you do that when the discourse itself is turning around a humanist understanding often of voice and of what it means to be a subject, and then and then at the same time, there's this tradition within the animal movements, and I don't think it's strictly just in the West, either, that the position or the responsibility of animal advocates is to see themselves as speaking on behalf of those who are voiceless. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's correct. I mean, politically, animals don't have voices. But in some ways, it's, it's a kind of reinforcement of the humanist tendency to presume the speaking um, And having a voice is a human capacity. So there was this real tangled kind of set of ideas in uh, in what appears on the surface as a very simple idea, which is the voice trope, you know, to have a voice, Mm -hmm. it's just so common. So I turned in my work, as the animal turn was happening, to think about what would it mean to really pay attention to the legacies of the animal liberation movements and animal rights movements, but also other social justice movements that have said, you know, a wrong is committed when we are presuming to know the experiences of the quote unquote, the other, and not allowing them to speak for themselves. Mm. So I began to ask, well, how could we bring animal voices in that isn't just strictly about sort of human representations and how could we do this in a way that would be Less problematic that we could never really interview people would sometimes say to me you know you can 't interview a dolphin or something like that, but there 's yeah. actually ways you can you can talk about animal subjectivity that I think gets at subject there 's ways of, of talking about animals that gets at richer versions of their subjectivity than what I was seeing within some aspects of the animal movements and certainly with the emergence of the intersectional versions of the animal movements that were focusing almost entirely on the oppression and suffering of animals and not speaking or speaking to those richer versions of subjectivity. So there is this kind of push that I had or this kind of impulse that I had to wanting to centralize animals' voices in this complex way. And so I used you know, some science and some emerging work around um, animal minds and behavior, people like Mark Beckhoff. And mm-hmm. I tried to also be aware of people like Paulo Frieri, who talks also centrally about voice and teaching, that really just having a bunch of voices at the table, while that's important and maybe the first move, that that really wasn't enough for what we could, we would consider liberation or moves towards liberation, that... This is informed for me um, by people like Spivak who talk about that you also need to have a structural analysis and policy change and those sorts of things. So I'm always cautious when I'm talking about this with people because they say, okay, great, now everybody has a voice, so what? Like it can't be just the proliferation of voice if it's not paired with a larger political and social um, set of policy and structural changes at, at that systemic level as well. But I think it's absolutely essential um, to the work so, that we're doing.
1: So it sounds like there are several things happening with regards to to voice. At the one level, there is voice as an embodied experience, something that we say, something that we, you know, we shout, we scream, animals call, they bellow, they they shrill. Um, so to have a voice and to make a, vocal, a vocalization seems perhaps different to what is being said when we say voice and politics. Uh, and then later on, now right towards the end, where you might have voices that are heard, but potentially how they are heard matters. Uh, Because let's say you have several voices all speaking at a table whose voice is privileged, right? Uh, And especially when different voices start to compete with one another. Uh, And I know we're speaking now in quite abstract ways, but Let's say you've got an entanglement of different oppressions, different groups that are vying for uh, access to resources, whose voice matters, politically speaking, uh, in that that space. And I suppose that this is where advocates start to say, well, someone needs to be sitting at the table for animals and saying we should have resources dedicated towards understanding their experiences, uh, understanding their lives and understanding their political positions.
0: Yeah, I, to- I totally agree with what you're saying. I think that what we did at the beginning of Animal Voices that I hope was you know, part of, and I still believe is part of a progressive move, is that we were thinking about whose voices had been missing from animal advocacy or who is not being heard or whose voices really have been pushed aside. And if we are using that metaphor of the table... This is why it was part of the vision of the Animal Voices radio show to seek out marginalized voices within the animal advocacy movement. So we weren't hearing a lot um, directly from trans people within sort of the mainstream discourse. So that was really important. And we would seek out those sorts of perspectives. We would try to talk with people um, from countries where we weren't hearing within the Western or dominant dialogue, the mainstream dialogue, um, we would seek out activists to talk about their own local context. And so the way that we would think about sort of disenfranchisement of people is something that we did a lot of at the, at the beginning of the show and continued to do with the show. However, I don't think there was as much kind of dedication in the early period to think about how animals come to that table through our representation um, Mm -hmm. in ways that might limit or also open up possibilities. So it's not that I thought that people were doing things wrong necessarily, there were things that I was critical of, but I really started to take that question of voice seriously and the embodiment that you're talking about seems part of that answer. So how are animals in their embodied communication, this is something that Barbara Smuts talks about, How do they express themselves in a way that we can still say is meaningful? We don't have to say, oh, they're so different from us and there's no continuity between us. And therefore, I'm going to just step back because this is also something that the feminist movement did. Like, we don't want to keep making those mistakes. So we're just Mm going to step back and let you speak for yourself without recognizing, I think, what you're getting at about power Mm -hmm. and that sometimes it's not enough to just say, well, we'll let you represent yourself because... The, the power dynamics in the room mean that some people are going to be heard or some beings are going to be heard and others aren't. So there's the embodiment piece, like actually paying attention to um, communication, but also, I guess, transcending that more physical side of what we would consider um, communication and to really think about the internal lives of non-human animals and ways of doing our homework better that would centralize how they experience and know the world. And so that if we are going to act as translators or advocates speaking on their behalf, that at least we've tried to be in that space with them and the entanglements that you're talking about to try to be more honest about the way that all of that stuff is jumbled together. Mm -hmm. You know. Is it, you know, it's not that an indigenous person or a person of color or trans person gets to have the full picture in terms of representing non-human animals, but I think their voices should be prioritized in the conversation and at, in having a seat. But I also think there's, I think there's room for some of that to mingle with um, scientific understandings, field work about um, the multicultural societies of sperm whales, for example. Like how to also think about that in relationship to addressing this question of disenfranchisement or um, oppression that occurs within the animal movements itself and broader society. Uh,
1: So I I definitely want to get to the idea of subjectivity, which you've brought up, I think, several times and how voice is... You know, inherently part of subjectivity and how one comes to understand themselves, I guess, as a subject. Uh, But before I do so, something you were saying there was pretty interesting about. Oppression and saying whose voices should be privileged when having this conversation. And and now this is quite a thorny uh, area and one, I think, where people start to not really know. As you rightfully said earlier, um, you know, feminist groups might say, okay, it's not my place to speak on behalf of others, so how do I navigate this realm? And I wonder in thinking, you know, with tools like intersectionality or, you know, entanglement and oppression, When we are considering animals and their experiences, uh, should one be cautious, I guess, of not focusing on the dominant hegemonic uh, framework is not the right word, and I'm using a double negative, which is never a good way to phrase a question. Uh, Would one not do better to focus on the dominant hegemonic ways in which animal relations are currently structured uh, or is that just another form of privileging I guess western forms and relations with animals okay you have to back me up and just repeat it again please if you (laughs) so for example you had said that we should definitely be privileging uh, indigenous voices in these conversations and speaking about how they come to understand uh, you know Uh, human and animal relations and unpack those and how different subjectivities come to be understood. But at the same time, should there not also be a very concentrated focus on the hegemonic ways in which humans and animals relate to one another, such as, you know, factory farms uh, or I don't know, clothing industries, uh, whales, seafood, whatever are the main ways in which we are interacting with one another. Mm. uh, Does that make more sense?
0: Yeah, it does. I think it's a really great question. It's such a provocative question. It's one that I think I struggled with for many years. Um, And then I started to make some connections where those two tracks that you're talking about didn't feel as separate to me anymore. So, through um, work, the work of Mira Saleh-Ross and Mark Carbusiki who had done the show previous to me, they started to focus on people who are um, indigenous, for example, who are also mobilizing against the fur trade and showing how the modern factory farm version of fur farming, so this intensification of um, agriculture for fur, that that also comes out of a colonial context that meant Mm -hmm. the disruption of um, indigenous uh, uh, relations and their lands and the genocide of both people and animals. And those um, practices that we see as being these dominant practices, when we even think about something like animal experimentation, that isn't separate from, a colonial context, which might be for some indigenous people, the center of their analysis. But we can see that there's links between Mm -hmm. those dominant practices and then these voices that we're talking about who have been so dedicated to dismantling um, those structures as well as naming their own experiences of oppression. So on the one hand, I think that, yes, we do need to keep focusing on these large scale phenomena that are harming animals, the the greatest um, impacts of animals come out of a colonial capitalist um, set of processes. Mm-hmm. So industrial animal agriculture, animal experimentation, fur farming, etc. These are often linked to um, profit and that they can be traced through these uh, colonial and racist legacies. So I guess what I'm interested in is, yes, keeping the focus on in one hand on those large scale practices, but that focusing on the critical perspectives of trans people or indigenous people or people with disabilities, in some ways, um, it not only names their experiences and their understanding of human animal relations, but in many instances, they're illuminating in new and provocative and important ways, Mm -hmm. those dominant practices as well.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of really exciting thoughts and scholarship coming out of disability studies yeah. at the moment. That's also, I think, you know, starting to call some animal studies scholars out for the ways in which we frame our questions and the ways in which we try to say, well, this is why animal voices should be heard because, um, and coming back to subjectivity, which humans are considered to have subjectivity. And often I think disability is used as a as a trope to say, well, we don't deny Uh, subjectivity to ex-humans, but we deny it to other humans maybe because of whatever arbitrary reason we've given. Um, That was a very specific sentence I gave there. (laughs) (laughs) It it actually relates to um,
0: an interview I just did with Stefan Dolgert, who's a political scientist here at Brock University, and we were talking exactly about that intersection between critical disability studies and animal rights or animal liberation or critical animal studies. And we were talking about that kind of um, stealing or that kind of appropriation of um, ideas about critical disability studies and then sort of marshalling them into animal liberation arguments, but not ever really sitting with and being dedicated to the liberation and the voices on their own of folks with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And there's there has been this move, and it's something that really – frustrated me and has been a center of my critiques of the animal movements is to think about how we're using analogies. Because I think that as we turn towards critical animal studies and an intersectional approach, that sometimes that just means drawing on different movements and different sets of theories in ways that are convenient or make a, a nice little argument, but actually aren't dedicated to the centralization, liberation concern for on their own in their own right. The, the, those um, people associated with the groups that are being analogized.
1: I think that's really, really important because there are all of these overlaps and these tensions. Um, there seems to be a lot of really uh, interesting and inci- exciting thoughts, you know, with regards to, you know, animalized humans and humanized animals and how, you know, that's been used across history to privilege some animals over some humans and some humans over some animals and that it's never really as clear and clear and clean cut as you know animals versus humans mm. that it's all very contextual it's all uh, very much located in specific places um uh, which is shaped also by different cultures and different ways in which we come to understand our relationships to one another uh, what is pure what is dirty um i just want to re Shift a little bit here to thinking about subjectivity, so our f- our focus concept for this episode is interspecies subjectivity, and you've mentioned the idea of subjectivity several times uh, so far already. Could you perhaps just tell us what is what does subjectivity mean uh, it seems like a really obvious concept, but is it really? Right.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, you've asked me this, maybe this question already, and I actually didn't answer it fully. And so I apologize for that. So subjectivity, the way that I'm using it is about recognizing that living beings are different from inanimate objects, essentially. So I have a subjectivity and you have a subjectivity and other sentient beings have subjectivity in the sense that they are conscious in the world, they're conscious, um, experiencing beings, and they have perspectives, they have desires. And then we would say, perhaps, in sort of animal liberation discourse, that they have um, interests. Mm-hmm. So you could kick a chair, and they don't have an interest in not suffering. Whereas if you kicked a dog, we would say that they have an interest. I'm not going to get tied up with that particular term, but we would recognize that they, that they are not an object. And though even... Even it might be too easy of a dichotomy to talk about subjects and objects. I think it's an important distinction. It's one that I think is still meaningful. Um, It's certainly meaningful within our legal regimes when we think about persons versus property, which is sort of can be understood as subjects versus objects. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm talking about. And then when I'm talking about interspecies subjectivity, I'm talking about different forms Of subjectivity that are made possible through our relations with others. And in some ways, this goes back to the point that you had just made about culture and context and specificity. And this in some ways is drawing on the work of Donna Haraway, but it's also drawing on um, anti-colonial scholars, um, such as Chandra Mohanty, who really talk about that we come into who we are, we come into our being through our relations with others. And That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about intersubjectivity, that we are who we are by virtue of our relations. And so those can be relationships with other um, non-human beings or human beings or the environment. Um, But the kind of intersubjectivity that has been really fascinating to me is is, um, the kind of possibility between building better human-animal relations Mm -hmm. in part um, by paying attention to how animals relate to other animals and then how animals from their own perspective as much as possible are relating to us. So this is work like Barbara Smuts who are they're really shifting this idea of the teacher um, to animals that there can be something that we could learn about building better relations and, being, um, and, and achieving this intersubjectivity or recognizing this intersubjectivity by really paying attention
1: to non-human animals. So so subjectivity it sounds like it's operating almost at an individual level um you have a subjectivity where its intersubjectivity is focused on the sinews between individuals the relationships that they forge with one another or through being in relation to one another um is that is that kind of in the right ballpark
0: yeah, I, I think that I've been challenged on that, though, recently. And in my own work, I think about popular films now, like uh, My Octopus Teacher, who talk about subjectivity in a way that, or show us subjectivity of an octopus, for example, that's not maybe the same kind of subjectivity that we might talk about when expressing our own experiences or what it means to be human. So I'm a little bit cautious to say it's about individuals, because in some yeah. ways, the, the way that I'm conceptualizing subjectivity is that subjectivity is about experiences and relationships in the world. And so there's really no subjectivity that could be sort of distilled out um, and just associated with the individual because we're already so porous and who we are is always made through those enmeshments and those relationships. Donna Haraway is much more eloquent on this this point. Um, But the... Argument that Chandra Mohanty makes about social subjectivity is that, say, for example, the category of woman, what it means to be woman is going to be always particular to place and context, and Mm -hmm. that emerges out of that context. And there is no distillable woman that we could, you know, somehow stack up all the criteria and say, this is what it means to be a woman, because the experience of subjectivity is always going to be particular to place, which would include culture, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where I feel like people like Claire Jean Kim and her work on what she calls taxonomies of power is more helpful than the way that some of the articulations of intersectionality have been in relationship to animals. So instead of thinking about just points of intersection between different groups or different forms of oppression or how we understand the subjectivity and the oppressed subjectivity of the various different groups that we instead think about um, subjectivity and the experiences of, of oppression as being um, enmeshed with in fluid taxonomies of power. And that um, what it means to be an animal is in relationship always to what it means to be human and what it means to be human is going to be in relationship to various different racial categories that are produced out of that dichotomy. And so it's a more complex, and I I know it's difficult to talk about, Mm -hmm. um, but it's really, um, it is interested in individuals. I think that's a contribution of the animal movements to say that individuals matter, but to show that they're mattering and that who we are in this sort of um, much more web-like horizontal way that indigenous scholars and um, people like Haraway and Smuts have been talking about for so long is um, is the kind of subjectivity that I'm interested in and feels most resonant and um, has a kind of humility to it rather than kind of an assumption that the individual can ever be parceled out as this kind of atomized discrete mm-hmm. subject, if that makes sense.
1: I think, yeah, it it does. We've uh, actually entered a friend of mine, um, Josh, I think he'll be joining us in the the grad chat in the 10th episode. He is uh, very much in the ecology realm of things and I'm more in the animal studies realm of things. And we often find ourselves brushing up against one another on this particular point where at what point does one lean into ecology and another lean into animals? And sometimes I think that, you know, in the idea of, individual subjects. So uh yes, I'm a being and I view myself as uh an individual, right? I have a, I think, an individual idea of who I am. I'm Claudia, um, I live in the world as a person that's got a variety of different relationships. But how Claudia manifests uh matters depending on what room I'm in and who I'm talking to at that particular moment. So um yeah, I think maybe our, our vocabulary is still not quite there yet. But I don't know if I'm I'm not uh, I'm not fancy enough yet to know that. I think <laughs> um but that we are still I think we're both individuals and beings in relation. Um and how do we do respect to both of those? So how do I see a baboon as a baboon, but also as a being in relation to a zookeeper? Um and then should we be speaking about the baboon and the zookeeper, or should we be speaking about the relationship between them? Um, so what is the subject matter?
0: Mm. Uh, you know, one of the ways that maybe I can bring it into more concrete terms, because I think that the the questions you're raising are so important and the tension between ecology and critical animal studies or a more sort of animal studies approach or animal liberation is is vital, I feel very fortunate that I came out of environmental studies that was kind of walking amongst these amongst these worlds but I think part of the difficulty of articulating these ideas is that um, they're just complex you know mm-hmm. I remember struggling with some of these issues when I was you know and I still do and writing about how do I do this how do I bridge exactly the kinds of issues that you're talking about. And we will remember a professor writing carefully. So I think that we can do that <laughs> carefully. And so, so that's been guiding a guiding principle, but so my concrete example that maybe is uh, one way of thinking about that bridge would be when we think about something very important, like the experience of a monkey in uh, an animal experimentation laboratory. So, not just their experience of the actual operations or any of the physical interventions, but if we think about their experience of sitting in a cage or their experience of, and I remember for me, this image really stood out of two monkeys holding each other, that, 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 that kind of complex being with, The social subjectivity of animals gives us an important tool to have better conversations about animal liberation. So we can see there that that individual is having an experience, but they're also having, you know, a social experience. They're having an experience with the workers, they're maybe comforting their cage mates. And I think by pointing to social subjectivity as one tool in our tool belt um, can actually embolden our our desire to alleviate the suffering of animals in these very practical ways. And so Mm -hmm. that when I'm pitching an argument about animal experimentation, if I'm going to talk about the individual lives of those animals, I'm going to be talking about their rich social capacity, what their lives can be like not only in terms of their individuality, but what what it means to be a monkey in place in a natural Mm -hmm. environment um, and all the richness that is there and that when that is reduced, as it is so severely within a laboratory, we know better what is lost. And I feel Mm -hmm. that we are better in a position to do that representing of their subjectivity and that part of that to me seems to be about acknowledging at least for animals that we would consider social their their social capacity as well their emotional capacity their social capacity their cultural capacity it actually helps us through speaking about subjectivity in more complex ways to mount better arguments for animals
1: mm-hmm. so they don't matter just because they're individuals they matter also as as individuals but as beings that have really complex Wonderful, full, rich lives, uh, and they, those lives deserve to be understood. Uh, and this, and this takes me back to something you said right at the beginning of the episode about the power of voice in in advocacy movements. And one of the, one of the moves uh, in movements is to reclaim experience, to reclaim what experience uh, means. And the focus of season two here is experience. So how do you think focusing on these types of rich, complex ways in which animals are, uh, you know, within their own species and across species, uh, how do you think we could do better to reclaim those experiences? And I think you've hinted at it a bit here, but as scholars, what are the what are some of the tools we could do in our writing and in our observing to better reclaim those experiences and move away from some of the essentializing moves you're talking about? Yeah, thank
0: you for using that word to Essentializing, that's an important one. I've been talking about reductionism, for example. Um, I think for me, a, a lot of it relates to humility to begin from a place of thinking about how animals within our traditions and our understandings have been active participants in their lives, um, active resistors and agents, um, people like Jason Rye will talk about history from below, which would include looking at the histories of animals resisting their captivity in zoos, for example. So thinking about the sort of from below perspective um, is important to the work that I do. And I think it's a kind of a tuning that we might um, consider about how Um, animals are agents um, and actively resist. So even in an animal experimentation lab, I know people like Sonora Taylor have pointed to this, and I've written about this as well, that within an animal experimentation lab, animals are resisting all the time. There's Mm -hmm. documents about how to restrain animals. Um, Within many university public documents, they talk about all the different ways that you can protect yourself when an animal's fighting back. So I think thinking about resistance is important, thinking about agency, so how animals haven't been passive victims. It's part of the reason why the question of voice is so important to me, because there is a tendency at times to talk about animals as sort of passive, hapless victims and that's true in some ways, but in in other ways it's really an erasure, and it's a kind of reductionism of their lives. It doesn't do justice, and I don't think it's as honest as it could be about how they've been shaping the world and so again, to go back to Barbara Smut's work that if we are to build better relations to animals, we have to think about how they change the world and move in the world, and then how that changes us as well, and that has always been changing us they've always been part of human experience and to think about them as teachers and to think about the dialogue between humans and animals as going two ways, I think is essential. So for me, I turned to cognitive ethology, which is the study of animal minds and behavior and some of the really incredible fieldwork that's been done on, you know, baboons and other animals to really learn about how they socially construct their lives um, it's a turn towards indigenous knowledges that have been talking about animals as relations for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. the critical animal studies is not inventing a anew. Um, those are a couple of ways. Also, you know, Don- Donna Haraway talks about being onto the God trick. You know, the idea that there's sort of an objective reality in the world is kind of this God trick that <laughs> assumes that you can know from everywhere. And so I think to do the kind of work that you're talking about, we resist that, and we realize that we're always coming from, as she would say, partial perspective. That there's, a, we're always situated. She talks about situated mm-hmm. knowledge as partial perspectives. So there's a humility with that. There's a, an attempt to try to understand the other as much as possible on their own terms, but realizing that that we are never going to get it fully right. <laughs> that we're probably going to screw up a lot too. Actually, mm-hmm. I think that's something that my grad students struggle with as they hear some of this. And then they just feel overwhelmed. (laughs) Like, how can we, we can't possibly, and I'm always going to be this, doing this colonialist appropriative move, and I'm always going to be representing the other. And then they run away from it, or they just feel Mm. kind of scared. And I don't think, I, I don't think that's what I'm talking about. I'm saying it's an invitation into that complexity But that is paired with a dedication to make real change in the world. I'm not interested in subjectivity just because I think it's a neat idea about animals. It's because I think it allows us to do better work building human-animal relations and confronting the colonial capitalist, speciesist, humanist legacies that have been so incredibly damaging to non-human animals and to humans as well.
1: I mean, I think it's incredibly you know a subversive train of thoughts that the the minute you start to see someone whether that someone is an animal or a human um you know, even even a being of different sorts. Whether you actually start to see mushrooms, and you actually, even though I don't fully understand how mushrooms work, the you know watching that recent documentary on mushrooms just changed my world. My ability to actually see them, the extent to which they were visible in in my world, changed. Um, and it's it's not full, it's not complete, but I think I respect mushrooms more and uh, I think that if we start as you say to just be a bit more attentive to not just some animals but many animals and many of the relationships that we have both those you know uh, I had Catherine Gillespie on um, in the previous episode and we spoke about proximity and that there is something to understanding the relationships that you are in yourself and those that are really quite close to you, the the animals in your home, the animals on your plates, uh, to to actually contend with and think about what those relationships are. Um, But also that subjectivity stretches so much beyond just you as the center of that world right um that there are so many different relationships going on uh, different species connecting with one another creating uh, really beautiful relationships um and sometimes interesting ones that we've never thought of before and i think this is where the internet has really just opened up kind of a whole realm of observations of animals connecting with one another that we hadn't thought was really happening um
0: yeah, yeah, it's exciting. I, I watched I know the talking the fantastic fun guy film. Yeah, I think you're I watched it twice in a row. <laughs> me too. I love that. I think that I think that it's easy or maybe it's been easy for me in a conversation to talk about complexity in a way that can feel daunting. And mm-hmm. I think by pointing to wonder as you are thinking about the possibility and the um, extravagant multiplicity of life and it crea- mm. how it creates itself and all the different individual experiences um, embodied within that. That can be a marvel. That can be this tantalizing, wonderful thing to contemplate that might inform our activism and our scholarship. And then along with that, comes responsibility. So if we're Mm -hmm. attending to that, if we're really opening ourselves up to that, how do we grapple with the very material consequences of these systems and processes that are so damaging, that cause so much suffering, that perpetuate the subjectification? How do we then take that responsibility and apply it in the world? Um, How do we be different? And then how do we share that with
1: others um, and make meaningful change? those are the big questions and um before we 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 switch to your your quotes uh because i think this is part of answering that how do we make meaningful change um you could have just said that you were speaking about intersubjectivity um but you chose to put species in there you you chose to Flag species that you were speaking about interspecies subjectivity. Why? Why the move to to do that? Why the move to put species in between instead of just focusing on all relations?
0: I think that there's still something to be said for particularity. You know, people have pointed me in the over the years to actor network theory, and I have drawn on some actor network theory and various different other forms of posthumanism um, that. I think are trying to get us to do some of that broader ecological work or even to think about technology in new ways as being part of this landscape of multiplicity and part of that wonder that I was getting at.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I, I appreciate that. I think those critiques of my own work are valid, uh, but like the idea of voice, even though I think it's um, fraught in many ways, it's still useful as a placeholder. And I still think it's important right now to flag species. It's Mm -hmm. part of the conversation about intersectionality um, that is still often missing from those uh, discourses that when we're talking about subjectivity outside of contexts like this, people still presume that to be a subject is to be human. And Mm -hmm. even though that's challenged all the time by our relationships that we might even have immediately within our own homes with non-human animals, that, that, um, it's still something that, um, we haven't let go of, I think in the dominant discourse, um, that to have a voice means to be human and that there's, that they're synonyms. And so by distilling out the term species, I want to draw our attention to, um, species as a dynamic when we think about, different forms or axes of difference that we include species as being one of those axes of difference. And, Mm -hmm. and that's complicated. And we've had a very, you know, intricate set of conversations now, even just through this episode. But I think that, um, I just don't want to see a flattening of a conversation about animals to be, even though they're important conversations about, like say a river and people will call me out on that right away too that that how do we understand the fish without understanding the river and they're in relationship absolutely but at this moment in terms of thinking about voice and subjectivity I still think it's useful to flag species as Mm -hmm. being one of the dynamics as complicated as that is to to have be part of our dialogue so I don't yeah. know if that, I don't know if that answers your question, but
1: it does, it does. I think, I mean, I think I, I, I totally get it because I want to embrace complexity and I want to embrace, um, and, and lean into the fact that I will not know everything. I want to lean into the idea that, uh, I will not have all the answers or complete answers or total answers and that I should be in wonder of, of the complexity, uh, however, at the same time, I do think that I want to resist complete uh, relativism as well, that there is something distinct about the different ways that different relationships manifest. And maybe here we're starting to talk about structures. But what what work does it do? And, and I've been having conversations with people about the dichotomy, you know, the human nature dichotomy. Uh, if we collapse that and we say, OK, it's all nature, there is no human. What work does that do what does it what does it achieve I think politically uh when we're trying to talk about what work needs to be done for the world or for us um versus because it's hard because I I do think that that dichotomy has been used to really sustain a whole bunch of uh you mentioned it right at the beginning of the episode you know relationships of mastery Mm um but at the same time, there is a certain power to recognizing that those categories have manifested, uh, whether or not you know we use them, we operationalize them. Species is operationalized all the time in different power moves. So there is something to be said about flagging it and bringing it out. I think in what you're talking about here. So to say species is to orient yourself to focus um, to say that this is the particular relationship mm-hmm. I'm looking at. So I totally, I, I think I got it, um, and I really appreciate it. Yeah,
0: it's, it's one of the reasons why I struggled, I think, in environmental studies as much as it was such a nurturing place for me to do my graduate work is exactly for this reason, because people would be talking about unpacking notions of nature and that even in very radical incarnations of that discourse the specificity of non-human animals was lost. And so mm. it, I, it often wasn't possible to talk about um, pigs, for example, as being, you know, su- subjects with their own experiences because the discourse was so dedicated to understanding those animals as being outside of nature because they had been domesticated. They're seen as artifacts, they're polluters. And that um, even though we might say, well, you know, the contemporary environmental movements and thought has um, changed and there's more an accommodation of thinking about domesticated animals who have really seen, have been seen as kind of contra to nature within a lot of environmental discourse. Mm -hmm. And there's an openness for them now, but I still don't think that um, we're getting at the specificity within some of those, not only um, forms of ecological thought, although there are people who are making those connections, Um, and certainly post-humanism is making some of those connections, but the kind of neutralizing that you're talking about is, is worrisome for me. And mm-hmm. I sometimes worry, I think about the phrase critical animal studies and I was hired to teach critical animal studies and this was great. <laughs> and, and I'm so, I'm so honored that I've had a chance uh, to do that. But there's the sense that um, as I move towards post ways of understanding the world, that the category of the animal starts to feel so flimsy because mm-hmm. it does get integrated into um, these larger discussions, and then I think in trying to be more equitable and horizontal in our thinking, or web-like, or um, any of those those metaphors that um, that we're losing we're we're losing exactly the point <laughs> that I was trying yeah. to make at the beginning about subjectivity to think about the uniqueness of the of the. Um, individual and the individual in relation to others and made possible through others. So it's, it's a difficult line to walk. I feel very indebted to environmental discourse because they've often people who are invested in those areas have offered important correctives to me. And um, so I, I welcome them in, but I'm not, and I don't think they're asking me to, to lose the species piece, but I can see how, in this Mm -hmm. time of the animal turn that it can start to feel antiquated to be invested in these categories. But I like, I like what uh, Julia Kristeva says about even the idea of identity that I think she talks about it as a button, you know, it fastens something in place Mm -hmm. and we don't have to be particularly invested in the category, but it's still a fastener. And I think that we can unpack it all, but these are still fasteners in the world. And that's how I feel about the idea a voice, and that's how I feel about the idea of subjectivity as well. They're imperfect categories or terms, but they're part of our discourse right now, and I think that they're still workable in ways that um, have great potential. And I've seen them have great potential in my teaching, and the writing that I've done, and in my own activism.
1: Fantastic. Um, yeah, I think that is a that's a good place for me to to say. Fantastic. <laughs> I think you just summed it up so well there. And, and you brought up your teaching, um, which something that blew my mind when we were talking prior to the episode was you had mentioned that you are the first ever hired professor of critical animal studies. Is that correct?
0: So I'm still a sociology professor, but I was the first professor hired to specialize in critical animal studies. That's what they were hiring under. That was the umbrella that they were using in the job description. So that's exactly what I've got to teach. I also teach contemporary social theory, which includes some critical animal studies as well. I think all of my work inevitably does, Mm -hmm. Um, but the majority of my teaching has been in the area of critical animal studies. And so that's been really interesting because over the 10 years that I've been teaching, the ideas about what constitutes critical animal studies have dramatically been changing or they've really been evolving and they've been contested in this incredibly vigorous way and Mm. the work that i was doing in my early years and in the punk scene and the feminist movement of the 1990s there were really people who were doing intersectional animal work but it wasn't called critical animal studies at the time and i was using intersectional feminist theory to think through questions of voice in this very early way Um, that we would do things like, you know, in my master's, I interviewed slaughterhouse workers and people who worked in factory farms because I was noticing that their voices are often absent from the animal movements. And I think this has changed, but at the time it was that they were just demonized as being horrible monsters. So I wanted to move against that and Mm -hmm. to have them share their experiences and to link that into an anti-racist understanding or, or, you know, a broader labor critique and that sort of thing. And so the kinds of frameworks that I was using were really lending themselves to what was later called critical animal studies. So I was at the right place at the right time because I was doing the radio show, which was sort of doing critical animal studies before Mm -hmm. it was named as such about thinking, you know, how does economics or how do economics inform human animal relations and so powerfully disrupt them or um, traumatize animals and humans and how are species relationships informed by broader colonial and racist legacies and how can we honor advocacy, which has been something that's important to critical animal studies to stay in dialogue with what people are doing, grassroots movements. Those are all things that were really important to me. And then again, when we talk about placeholders, that critical animal studies was that button and I was doing that work and I was recognized I think by other sociologists in the department as somebody who had been doing that bridging, I had done a comprehensive exam area in my PhD about animal agriculture and the histories of domestication. I had Mm -hmm. looked at labor theory just on its own, not necessarily in relationship to thinking about animals. I wanted to understand histories of um, labor in the United States and Canada. So I'd also done that work. So some of the things that we might identify as critical sociology, were already salient in, in my work. And then it was about bringing the animal question uh, into conversation. So that's well, been the journey for me.
1: That's, uh, I normally ask people about their journey right at the beginning of uh, the show. So I'm happy that we we got to hear some of how you, you came to be where you are. And thank you for all of the really important work that you've done to to make those bridgings.
0: I talked about the two monkeys holding each other during my dissertation and it was one of the times I really got teary and I also got teary talking about it in this interview as well. Oh, really? I think it's just yeah. such a grounding image for me about the work mm. that I'm trying to do, you know, to kind of keep that in mind, <laughs> those sorts of those sorts of moments and what's at stake, right?
1: Yeah, it's sometimes we have these really big conceptual discussions, which are so important, but to just bring it back and have have in mind that there are beings that experience the world who these, uh, you know, who these, these conversations matter for. Yes. Mm. It's, uh, it's hard. And it comes back again to what you were saying about voice. Uh, it's really hard to straddle that line and that, that kind of criticism of how can you speak for another? Um, you know, what kind of power dimensions are happening and, whose voice matters because everyone wants to speak on behalf of animals and how can I say that my understanding of an animal's experience is superior to the person next to me um but still like you say those those two monkeys hugging one another um or the squeal of a you know of a pig in distress like I think it just really draws home that it is it matters it really matters it matters to that pig and those monkeys Mm
0: -hmm. yeah Yeah. and I think that I think in some ways we can make some assessments about how people do that better and those who do not. Somebody like Barbara Smuts or, you know, many people who run sanctuaries who I should just give much more acknowledgement to you and I tried to do during the radio show. um, People who have those sustained relationships with non-human animals where they're really paying attention, I think, Mm -hmm. do get at something about non-human animal subjectivity in ways that are better than the person who understands their dog as simply operating out of a genetic script and being food driven and um, that their behaviors, um, if they're acting out, are a testament to them trying to gain territory or to be alpha Mm -hmm. or something like that. That to use those common sense narratives about animals, I think, is to do that representation poorly. And so as much as I'm you know interested in sort of respecting the variety of different perspectives, Um, that people have towards non-human animals. I think there's, I guess there's a way that I would still be willing to make some assessments about the closer, sustained paying attention um, Mm. in a humble way to um, non-human animal subjectivity that isn't completely like everyone gets to have their say. (laughs) Or the other side, which is we can't speak. I think that we actually have a responsibility as difficult as it is to do it carefully, but to not do it is also a kind of speaking so there's
1: really yeah. no kind of out. <laughs> that's, so. that's so true. Like I've I've stood in the the dog park and I've heard folks talking, you know, about particular breeds, and they'll say, "Oh, but I've got this breed. That's what this is what they do." Um, and it's it's sent me down like a kind of a thinking trail where I think, okay, so you've got a particular breed that has been bred; they they've been constituted to behave in a particular way, um, and I get that. I get that biologically you know their biology does matter and that that this does but then it's to reduce who that dog is who um i don't know and uh, you know who joey is in the park who is joey and to say that joey is just a labrador uh, seems to me to miss to miss something um and and they don't seem equal they don't they don't seem the same way of trying to understand his experience of the world uh, to reduce him to breed or to reduce him to, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm making
0: any sense. No, there, but absolutely. I, I, the sort of representation from the outside, I'm. this is, I think, the argument of Edward Said and Orientalism, that it is part of the process of a colonial view, view to represent the other without consulting the other. And this is something that we see enacted over and over again. And it's something that concerns me very much about some forms of ecology or how that gets taken up in a popular way. That Mm -hmm. species, while it is an important um, way of differentiating animals, that, that to claim that you can generalize across species to all individuals is that exactly kind of uh, colonizing, uh, erasing move, which is part of, I'll just say very briefly about, and this will tie into the quote as well, that this is one of the reasons why I think the work in cognitive ethology around animal culture is so fascinating because it just smashes that concept of species apart where we've typically thought that if you want to understand the behavior of the so-called black bear, for example, that you could open a natural history textbook, and then read about the black bear, and that that would be a generalizable description to all individuals within that species. And that's just not true. The work that we've seen in non-human animal cultures shows us that there's all sorts of specificity um, within species, uh, that individual groups and individuals themselves can have different learning experiences, they have different Mm. personalities. And that's not the only place that people are talking about specificity within species, Uh, but I think it's a really interesting place. It's a really interesting site uh, to explore what we're talking about. We're really talking about sperm whales, for example. You have people like Shane Garrow who who write about um, these groups of animals, and he shows how they have different foraging strategies. They have different dialects. They have um, – knowledge that's passed down through generations that can be lost if animals are killed off within that group who are elders so that kind of specificity does not allow us to open up the textbook anymore and just to talk Mm. about the species as if they're one thing so it's one way into that conversation about social subjectivity that i think is a a more honoring move and just more Mm. honest
1: yeah um and more, yeah, more honest, more genuine, more reflective. I think of what yeah. the the multitude of experiences are. Uh, yeah, I think we need to, if we're looking after, like for multi for, for multiplicity. I think it's an odd word to say for multiplicity and complexity with within our own species. I think, and we see the varied ways in which we've come to live. We see how we've, you know. Changed our environments and altered the ways in which we are in relation with each other it seems to me it seems to me just incorrect somehow to think that all other species would not have any sort of complexity like that to think that we are the only ones that would have you know everyone else would be reduced to a page on a book like you say whereas us as a species have just so much variance so much complexity Uh, I just there's certainly overlaps between us as different people there are ways in which we as a species have overlaps and are alike uh, from different nations from different groups from uh, we're certainly alike um, but we also we're also not alike in all ways. Um, and I think that to hold those two in tension is really hard um, for for many of the reasons that you've spoken about today. But it seems to me, as, as you've rightly pointed out, you're just incorrect somehow to think that all other animals, all other species don't have that dynamism.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's a really great way of putting it. And I was going to just rephrase what you already said, but I think just to bring it back right to the beginning of the interview, that we talk about voice and you think about other social justice movements and people struggling to have their individuality, their unique experiences, their forms of agency, their forms of resistance to be recognized and to be articulated and to have them flourish. Um, within the public realm and um, within within groups themselves, as a resistance against objectification, it really, despite the sort of complex philosophical or even abstract conversation that we have, it's exactly this that pushes against the objectification that our economic system rests on in terms Mm -hmm. of its understanding of non-human animals. So we begin with... An understanding of a cow in an industrial dairy farm as a very reduced version of who they actually are. They're seen as a machine. They're seen as a producer. They're seen as sort of dull-witted if there's anything sort of happening inside their minds at all. And so this conversation about recognizing multiplicity and specificity and this flourishing and the possibility and the wonder of how others experience the world is crucial because it is the move directly against that resourceism, that objectification that makes all these very damaging, horrific systems like allowed to stay in play. Because you already have that ideological apparatus that is saying they don't have an internal life, they don't have a life that matters, they don't have complex understandings of the world, it's not worth recognizing, it doesn't exist at all, we've already made that fundamental cleavage between humans and other animals, and we've put them in that object place. So the, mm-hmm. the conversation about subjectivity, as abstract and theoretical and academic as it sounds, is the is the fighting back against that objectified view that is the very foundation of how the systems continue to move.
1: Yeah, I think I think you've just put it so well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for for making yourself so available and for yeah, for bringing all these different points together, I think I said to you off air that in many ways, I think this concept is the glue of trying to understand animals and experience. I think uh, animal culture was part of it. And, um, you know, Katie in the last episode brought geography and in place into it. But I really think crystallizing and focusing on, as you've said here, why this is so important Um Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, We're heading now towards the end of the show and I normally give uh, folks an opportunity to read a quote. I know you've got two quotes ready for us. Uh, Do you want to tell us uh, your quotes? Thank you so much for making the time and the space for me. It's an
0: absolute delight to be on your program. I'm so... I'm just so enamored by just the chance to be in a kind of radio context and to be in dialogue about these issues that mean so so much to me and have informed, you know, decades of work now and to see people like you excited about these ideas and in these conversations to me is also just so nourishing and it gives me energy to continue the work so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So here are the quotes. I'll read them. (laughs) We've already talked about them probably to some extent already, but the first one is by Donna Haraway from the Companion Species Manifesto, Dogs, People, and Significant Otherness. And the quote that I pulled out is, beings do not pre-exist their relatings. So I've talked about that already quite a bit, so I'm not sure if that's the quote that I'll focus on. But the second quote is by Barbara Noske from a book that I think still stands the test of time, written in 1997. It's called Beyond Boundaries, Humans and Animals. And Barbara Noske, I think, is really a radical. She's not often, I think, talked about enough. She writes, satisfied as they have been with the gulf between human subjects and animal objects, most social scientists have done nothing to fill the gap between humans and animals. Instead, they have remained essentially passive, never bothering to ask what human-animal continuity means in their own sphere. What is more, they have been bending over backwards in what they thought would be the best defense of humanity's uniqueness, while surrendering the whole tricky terrain of continuity to the devices of the reductionistic and objectifying biological sciences.
1: Mm. That so nicely sums up some of the things we've been talking about today. And uh, I think Barbara Noske has come up several times, uh, actually, in readings I've had in the past two or three weeks. Um, She seems to have just had her finger on the pulse uh, early on. Um, Yeah, that definitely brings a whole bunch of what we've spoken about today with regards to you know continuity discontinuity the, the significance of actually focusing on particularities while at the same time holding in suspension all of these and embracing uh complexity uh, and i think as you you were talking about just leading into the quotes about Bringing into focus the animals themselves, whether it's the monkeys that are hugging or the cow in the dairy farm, um, to try and have these kinds of broad conversations about continuity and discontinuity while at the same time remembering who the animals are that you're speaking about. Uh, I was at a seminar series with Charlotte Blattner early on in my PhD, and she was about to give a seminar and she made sure that she took time. So the room was full and uh, everything was set up. And she made sure that she took time to walk around the room and put up photos of animals all around the room. And I'd never seen someone do that. And I haven't seen someone do it since, but she she had kind of said, it's really important that we see the animals, that that we sit and we have these conversations about subjectivity and we see who the animal is uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you. I think that quote really brings a whole bunch together.
0: That's such a powerful, that's just such a powerful moment that you uh, recall, thanks for sharing that. I think about the importance of my cat, who um, is no longer alive, but who um, was with me while I was writing my dissertation. And she sat on my lap as I was writing. And it did bring me into a kind of accountability that I'm not sure I would have had. I think it sometimes is easy to, go off into some of these abstract and interesting conversations and lose sight sometimes of the material uh, realities and the kind of responsibilities, uh, that we have to non-human and human flourishing.
1: Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to leave it there. Um, it's been an awesome conversation, uh, what, if we could just maybe have a quick one minute conversation, what are you currently working on? And if someone is interested in finding out more about your work, where can they find out, find you and find, find out about your work?
0: I had just written a, an article about, um, about, uh, a case of human, um, experimentation that happened at a prison in Ontario. And I looked at, The relationship between how the humans were treated in this psychiatric hospital slash prison and its strange, uncanny similarities um, between what was done to those folks there where they were tortured in order to cure them of their various different um, labeled psychoses. They were understood as psychopaths. And then how animals are treated in contemporary um, PTSD labs
1: Hmm. where
0: they're also harmed intentionally intentionally. Um, and the techniques are strangely similar. Um, and so it was sort of a specific look at human experimentation and animal experimentation in these two sites, one being this prison um, that has now had this major lawsuit where the Ontario government recognized that there was a breach of um, fiduciary duties and that they had been tortured and it did amount to assault. And then at the same time that I was learning about that case, I was looking at um, the experiment experimentation on animals within trauma labs. And that to me is so fascinating because the people who are doing that work often, as we already know, but but they really think that they're doing something positive for the world mm-hmm. because they're trying to help people with PTSD. And the model of PTSD, mm-hmm. the animal model is rats. Um, and so when I, I use um, Claire Jean Kim's understanding of taxonomies of power to think about the ranking of you know who rats are within public consciousness that allows them to be intentionally traumatized the point is to precipitate trauma in the animals so they're forced underwater they're oh, electrocuted all those sorts of things and it's it's against how we kind of popularly think about um, animal experimentation that is, the point is always to try to minimize suffering and we have the three R's and we, you know, follow these very strict, supposedly very strict welfare standards. But what, what, how do we make sense of when it's the point is to cause trauma and that we recognize that they have a psychology and we exploit it to try to yeah. make sense of, um, of uh, human post-traumatic stress Disorder, and what's so. really
1: important in that is you have to understand their psychology. You have to understand mm-hmm. that they are subjects in order to to use that. So, right.
0: So um, it's the paradox at the center, mm-hmm. I think, of the work. Because the mm-hmm. whole point is to deny it at the same time that they exploit it.
1: Exactly. And, and it happens in a whole bunch of, I think, institutions that rely on animals. So even zoos, what, I read a paper, I can't remember which one, but where it was saying, in effect, zookeepers have a very astute knowledge of how animal psychology works what they need to be happy what they need to be sad um and that somehow this makes it even more egregious some of the things that are done because you know that they're not just mm-hmm. things but you're somehow using that you're holding both of those discourses at the same time but operate like operationalizing them quite differently um yeah it's really so you've already written that on on
0: yeah on, it's- Yeah, it's for um, a book called Building Abolition, which is an abolitionist perspective on the prison industrial complex. And so I'm one of the people who are talking about human-animal relations as well. And there's another scholar who's talking about um, his witnessing of the importance of human-animal relations of men who are in prison with um, animals that they've been able to take care of within prisons. So there's mm-hmm. a couple of entry points where people are talking about something like the prison industrial complex in a way that would include animals in the analysis. So it's it, it's exciting to be part of that book. So that just, I just completed that. And is it is it published already? That's just coming out now. Um, It will be coming out this year. The most recent publication is from Colonialism and Animality, where I try carefully, I hope, to talk about the kind of limitations within critical animal studies and quote-unquote post-colonial thought Mm -hmm. that there isn't enough acknowledgement of animals as being cultural beings and that how this disrupts actually both sets of ideas Um, about who animals are. So it was a very tricky article to write, because I'm not sure if I'm in the position to really critique um, post-colonial studies. But I do think there are others who have pointed to the humanism of that field. And the conversations about animals' culture is pretty important if the center of the field is reclamation of culture, which is what yeah. the work of post-human or post-colonial theory is doing, is exactly the kinds of things that we were talking about earlier. But the assumption is always that culture is a human experience, right? and it's part of what makes us human. So that's that just came out in colonialism uh, in the uh, colonialism and animality book
1: yeah i read I read that this this morning it's so interesting it's It's such a good paper uh, if, <laughs> folks, if, if folks want to um find out more about you and your work uh do they just head over to the Brock University website uh, or do you prefer to connect with people on twitter um how How should people get in touch with you if they're interested in more um, yeah people can just write me
0: directly i haven't. Really stepped into Twitter too much. Maybe this will be incentive to do that. But people could start, I guess, with Twitter, or they. I'm absolutely open to receiving emails as well.
1: Perfect. And uh, just thank you once again. I know we've had we ran into several issues on trying to get a date pinned down, but you've been so gracious and available. And uh, thank you for spending so much time with me here this evening.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah, so quick. Maybe
1: at some point, if you'd be
0: open to it, if you think it would fit with your show, I could interview you.
1: That would be fun. And that would be a cool way to have a previous talk show host do something. (laughs) That would be really fun. I'm I'm not sure I'm yet – I yet have something to say. (laughs) It's a classic (laughs) grand (laughs) thing. But – yeah, I would definitely be keen to do that. Uh, the next season is hopefully going to be looking at animals in the city, which is where my some of my research is sitting. So, yes, thank you so much for offering that. I think that would be a lot of fun.
0: I would love to do that, but no, no pressure. I understand. I understand that feeling of like I'm not sure if I'm ready to to do this, but um, it would be it would be a delight for me. And I'm so curious to hear more about your work as well.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Now I'm excited. Now I'm great. like, Ooh. now maybe I need to think about the next season so that I can put myself in it.
0: <laughs> now, now I'm kind of thinking, okay, maybe there is some pressure. Yes, we should do this. I think it would be great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Once again, a huge thank you to Lauren Corman for joining me today and for being so generous with her time and thoughts. Uh, Another thank you to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this podcast, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. Make sure to join me in the next episode where I speak to Sue Donaldson about the idea of multi-species communities. So we've started to talk now a bit about subjectivity. What does it mean to be a subject? What kind of questions should we be asking and thinking about with regards regards to subjectivity and now we're going to move a bit broader how do these different subjects come into relation with one another what kind of communities could we possibly think of when we start to move away from just thinking about communities as only being human so make sure to join me next time this is the animal turn with me Claudia Hertenfelder For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I R O A R P O D.com.